As part of my preparations for this series of studies in the book of Romans, I pulled out my old file from the time when I studied uh, Romans with Dr. Gordon Fee, my New Testament professor at Regent College. I was a bit shocked when I thought of the date when that happened. That was June of 1999, so over 11 years ago. It seems like much uh, more recent than that, but it's not. Opened the file, the opening page of his lecture notes, Dr. Fee claimed that Romans is possibly the most influential book in Western culture. Now, that's a pretty large claim to make for these 16 short chapters that we're going to have a look at over these next months. Nobody would have said that about Romans when it was written or when it was received in Rome. Hardly anyone read it, and certainly not anyone with any influence. There was a lot that you could read in Rome, a lot of other stuff. Imperial decrees, exquisite poetry, finely crafted moral philosophy, and much of it was world class. And yet what happened in the passage of time was that this little letter left all that stuff firmly in its wake, in the dust. Paul's letter to the Romans has had a far bigger impact than the the writings of all those Roman writers put together. I've been aware of, of the influence of Romans for a long, long time, and yet I've always hesitated to preach it. Um, there are probably a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, it's not easy to read. I think if we say that at the outset and, and agree that, that that is the case, then we can allow ourselves a, a, a bit of time to, to work at it and learn from it. It's not an easy read. Theologically minded people love it, and the, the majority of the church tends to steer away from it except carefully chosen favorite passages. I, I want to reassure you at the outset that that I won't be trying to, and nor will other members of, of the preaching team here, we won't be trying to blind you with theology. Speaking for myself at least, I'm just not smart enough to do that. Some of the other guys might be, but that won't be uh, our aim. Our aim will be to come before this part of God's Word, to understand it as well as we possibly can, that we might live in the light of it. Uh, that takes me quite, second, quite naturally to my second reservation about preaching Romans, and that is that I don't believe the church has always been very good at, at reading this particular book in recent times. Because of the influence that Romans had on the thinking of the Reformers, Protestant churches have all too often come to Romans with quite a lot of preconceived ideas about what this book is about. It's not so much that those ideas are, are wrong, but sometimes they, they bring us with, with emphases already in place and ideas of what we expect to find that, that in my opinion, limit our, our clear grasp of what God would say to us today. Again, in his lecture notes, Gordon Fee said, Many of us don't come with a clean slate. 
Our task in understanding Romans is therefore complicated. We don't read the book on its own terms. We don't hear it for itself. We come with many prior agendas. He says we need to learn to read Romans as if the Reformation had never happened. Quite controversial, maybe. I don't think it is. Because each generation needs to hear the gospel for itself on its own terms, and in our own times. I'll say more about how we read Romans um, as we go together. In the meantime, let's get stuck in. Letter writing in the ancient world followed different uh, formulas than, than ours do. So nowadays we sign off a letter or an email with our name at the end, but in Paul's day it was quite the opposite. The first thing in a letter was, was the name of the writer. So in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul introduces himself as the writer of the letter. What we get here in these opening verses is, is the basics with quite a lot of elaboration. Paul likes to elaborate. I think that's a fair thing to say. So if we really only wanted the bare bones basics, let me show you that we would simply read the first word, Paul, And then we jump straight down to verse 7. Paul, to all in Rome. So it's sender, recipient, and then message 7b, grace and peace to you. But as I say, Paul likes to elaborate. And if we skipped over Paul's elaboration, we'd miss an awful lot of richness as he uh, tells us a little bit about himself and about the gospel that he's going to be writing about. In verse 1, he begins by elaborating briefly on himself. He says that he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The word translated here, servant, doulos, should probably be translated as slave. So Paul's got a, a very, on the one hand, a very, a very humble assessment of his, his role and his place. He is a slave of Christ Jesus. But he's also an apostle. And in contrast to slave, which is a pretty humble kind of a word, apostles are very, a word of great authority and dignity. An apostle's a, a person who's been privileged by his master to represent him and to carry his message. So Paul is Jesus' apostle. And the thing that strikes me here is just a lovely balance. Paul knows his humble status before the risen Lord Jesus. But he also knows that it's a huge, huge privilege to be Christ's man in the world. He's this lovely, balanced sense of his identity in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that he's set apart for the gospel And then in the verses that follows, he he tells us in these verses about the the gospel for which he's been set apart. The first thing he tells us is that the origin of the gospel is God. Dr. Leon Morris, one of the commentators, says, God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God Everything Paul touches in the letter, he relates to God. So let us be clear about this. The Christian good news is the gospel of God. 
Paul didn't invent it. It was revealed and entrusted to him by God. Folks, have you come across Wordle? Wordle is a thing uh, on the internet where if you enter into the little box on the dialogue a piece of text, it analyzes the piece of text and it produces in a diagrammatic form, it shows you which words in that text were most prominent. What I did was I cut and pasted the whole text of Romans, stuck it into Wordle to see what would come out, and here's what we get. Paul's gospel is the gospel of God. And it's the gospel of God about Christ, the the second biggest word. I just thought I'd pop that up for you. It'll save us working our way through Romans and tallying lists of words. But I thought that was an interesting way to illustrate this point, that it's God's gospel that we're going to be thinking about. Paul's second point about the gospel, we're, we're flying through these quite quickly, is that the proof of the gospel is in Scripture. He says that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Although God's revealed something new to these apostles, it's not something that's come out of nowhere. It's absolutely in continuity with what God's always revealed to his prophets. And Jesus himself was very clear about this. He constantly reached back into the Old Testament to show how it, the Old Testament, the writings of the prophets pointed to him. So this gospel is from God, but it's, it's a gospel that, that is affirmed already in Old Testament scripture. Thirdly, the substance of the gospel is Jesus Christ. We already saw the prominence of Jesus as we looked at that diagram on the screen. Paul goes on to elaborate about Jesus in verses 3 to 4. And again, there's a a wonderful balance in Paul's picture of Christ. On the one hand, he's a descendant of David. So that's talking about his human ancestry. But he's also the son of God. He became or was born a son of David, but he was declared God's son in his resurrection. And it's hidden to us a little bit in the the English translation, but in the Greek, we're told that he was a descendant of David, katasarka, according to the flesh, and that he was declared the son of God, katanuma hagiosunes, according to the spirit of holiness. The balance here is, is the humanity of Jesus on the one hand, full humanity, and the full divinity of Jesus on the other. There's three couplets here that bring us this full balance. Folks, we don't easily understand this, and I'm not going to even try just now, but Paul gives us a, a wonderfully comprehensive, full, balanced picture of Jesus. The scope of the gospel, Paul's gospel, is that it's for all nations. In verse 5, Paul says that it's through God and for the sake of God's name that he received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. The gospel's for everyone. No holds barred. And it's interesting because Paul, Paul's a, a very patriotic Jew. He loves his people, and we're going to see that clearly as we read on in the letter. But at the same time, he knows that he's been called to foreigners. So he's from a community of Jewish people that used to call 
foreigners, Gentile dogs, but his whole thing is about reaching Gentiles. And John Stott in his commentary says, we too, if we're to be committed to world mission, will have to be liberated from all pride of race, nation, tribe, caste, or class, and acknowledge that God's gospel is for everybody without exception and distinction. Is there anybody we wouldn't want to bring the gospel to? Jonah didn't want to take it to Nineveh. Is there anywhere that Ulster Presbyterians in 2010 don't want to take the gospel to? It's for all the nations. It's for all. The purpose of the gospel is the obedience of faith. Paul says his role as an apostle is to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. This is, this is important. This is Paul giving his definition of the response that the gospel demands. It's not simply faith, notice. It's, it's a faith that demonstrates its authenticity by obedience. This, this really strikes a chord for me uh, as somebody charged with uh, teaching the Bible here in this church. I used to think that my job was simply to preach God's Word that there was a sort of a, a simple do it and leave it kind of approach. If I do that, I've done my job. Tell it like it is. But I've realized over the years that there's a way of preaching absolute orthodoxy that allows the community to be unchanged by it. It almost gives permission to the community to remain unchanged by it. In these communities, orthodoxy, correct belief, doesn't lead to orthopraxy, correct practice, behavior. And actually, truth be told, nobody actually expects that to happen. There's a sense in which as long as we preach it, we can walk away. Friends, this is not how it should be. This is not how it was for Paul He expects to see a response of obedience that comes from faith. The goal of the gospel, says Paul, is the honor of Jesus. Do you see his words there, um, for for his name's sake? The NIV places them at the start of verse 5. They should actually come at the end of that Greek sentence as a bit of a climax. Why? Does Paul want to bring the gospel to the nations to see obedience that comes from faith? It's for the glory of Jesus. In his letter to the Philippians, he puts it like this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Paul wants to share the gospel so that every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord and so that the Father will have the glory that's due to him. Folks, that's why we share the gospel today. So that people will will bow before Jesus and, and that his Father will have the glory. 
In his summary of this section, John Stott gives us one sentence to capture all of this. The good news is the gospel of God about Jesus Christ agreeing with Scripture for the nations, resulting in the obedience that comes from faith for the sake of God's glory. Folks, I told you that when we were coming to Romans at this point in our church's life, the reason we were doing this was to to remind ourselves of the glory of the gospel. And, And these opening verses Uh, get us off, I think, to a flying start. In the first six verses, Paul's talked about himself, particularly, though, about the gospel for which he's been set aside. In the next seven verses, 7 to 13, he addresses his readers. uh, Look with me. To all in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints... Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know it's staggering that Paul could write these words? Staggering to think that a short number of years after Jesus Christ had died and risen again in Jerusalem, there was already a significant community of Jesus people in the city of Rome, right in the heart of the empire. It must have been a a wonderfully exciting thing for Paul to to write. And and again, a wonderful thing for these believers in Rome to to receive a, a letter like this. What does Paul say? First of all, he says they're loved by God. Second, he says they're called to be saints. They're called to receive grace and peace from God. Folks, we could choose to dwell on any of those, but I'm going to focus on the the last of the three. The idea that the Romans would be recipients of God's grace and his peace. Every time we sing the ironic blessing here, uh, when we baptize a baby or an adult into the, the membership of our church family, we use this Old Testament prayer asking God to be gracious and to give his peace. These these concerns of grace and peace are going to be very important in this letter. Paul's writing to these these guys in Rome, and he's going to think a lot with them about grace. God's free gift that allows sinners to be made right with him. But he's going to be thinking about that grace in 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 relation to the peace that it then wins, the peace that results from this reality, if it's true that Jews and Gentiles are both sinners saved by God's grace, then they have a profound common ground, a place of unity and a place to stand. And we're going to see how these two themes unfold in these next weeks. After this introduction, Paul tells his Roman readers, frankly, how he feels about them. If you still think that Romans is some sort of theological textbook, a systematic theology, or or a transcript of a theology lecture, have a look at these next verses and read again, or think again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, 
because your faith is being reported all over the world. The news has gone out. I think he's, he's probably not suggesting that everybody in the world knows about the Christians in Rome. I just don't think they have that kind of influence on the world stage. I think what he means is that in the, in the network of Christian communities, everyone knows and has heard of this particular community in Rome. Now, now it's important to understand this letter well, that, that Paul didn't have anything to do with this community. Most of the letters that he writes are to churches that he helped to found. So he's then in a, in a pastor-church relationship with them, and he's writing as a guy who, who spent at least some time with them and got them up and running. But he doesn't have that relationship with the church in Rome. All he knows about Rome is what he's heard. And he, he talks here about how the whole world is talking about the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. And he thanks God for it. Then he prays for them. Look at verses 9 and 10. John Stott says that in Paul's apostolic ministry, preaching and praying go together. He assures them that even though he doesn't know them personally, still he prays for them constantly and at all times. He tells them that he longs to see them. Isn't that lovely? Nothing standoffish or detached. I don't know what image you have in your head of the Apostle Paul. Sometimes we have him as the the rational, um, fiery church leader. But here he is, very happy to talk about his, his desire to see these friends in Rome, these believers. I long to see you, he says in verse 11 so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. What's his spiritual gift? Well, it's not what we might think at first reading. It's not some sort of supernatural uh, gift of the Spirit, uh, as we read in in some other parts of Paul's letters. The likelihood here is that he simply wants to to share with him his teaching. Uh, and, And it's going to come through in this letter what it is that he wants to teach this young church. He longs to be in Rome because he wants to give them a gift. But look, look at verse 12. He wants to receive encouragement from them. He believes that by his coming to them, they may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. This is, this is important. Paul's a church leader who knows about the flow back and forward of encouragement between a leader and the people. A leader and the people. He's an apostle. It's his job to go there and bring them encouragement. He's clear about that. But he knows also that being with them, encouragement will come to him. Just last week, I met with a member of our congregation. Uh, we had lunch together. And later in that week, uh, well, I'd come away from that lunch so encouraged by what God was doing in this person's life and, and, and how they were just brimming uh, with enthusiasm for serving Jesus. And I was emailing this friend later in the week, and I said, I hope I'm half as much an encouragement to you as you are to me. 
Dear brothers and sisters, never, never imagine that whatever relationship you have with me is a one-way relationship where it's my job to bring encouragement to you. You are the ones God has placed in my life uh, to encourage me, to bring blessing to me. And you do. My, how you do. When I think, sometimes the summer holiday allows you the chance to do this, when you're away from it all. When I think of the blessing that I believe I've been given to, to serve here at this point and to be with you. I was chatting to a friend about it in ministry and, and I said I wouldn't swap places with anyone in the world. You're, you're such an encouragement to me. So many of you individually and certainly also collectively. I hope and pray that for, for now and for some time to come, we'll, we'll see it like Paul sees it here, that we'll be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul goes on and he tells him that he's often planned to visit them. Look at verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've planned many times to come to you but I've prevent, been prevented from doing so until now. We don't know what exactly has held Paul up. I don't think it was an ash cloud. I don't know if there was a, a, a public transport issue. I don't think it was. I think, I think Paul just always had more people to tell about Jesus where he was. It probably made it slow for him to move on. I think he's probably still busy working around Greece, and he, he hasn't got as far as Rome yet. But I, I just was struck, it's a wonderful thing whenever someone communicates to you a genuine desire to be with you. I have a three-year-old daughter who does that. Whenever I come in from a day at work, Ruby comes running to the front door and she does this. She just jumps up and down with a smile on her face that says, Daddy, it's great to see you home. Paul longs to be with these people. He loves them. Just for a few moments, the third and final part of our passage this evening. In verses 14 to 17, Paul talks about his personal desire, his anxiety to preach the gospel in Rome. First of all, verse 14, he says, I'm bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to wise and to foolish. When Paul says I'm bound, it would be better translated, I'm, I'm a debtor to, to Greeks and to non-Greeks. And, and it begs a question, why would Paul think himself in debt to these folks? What's that all about? Paul's never been with them. He hasn't borrowed money off any of them. Or He can't be a debtor in that normal way that we understand the term. Well, there's another way in which we might be in debt. If on the way out this evening we're shaking hands at the door and you give me 20 pounds uh, that you forgot to put in the offering plate and say, 
Christoph, give that to Gwen or, or make sure that gets into the offering plate. I'll be in Gwen's debt or, or the church's debt until I deliver that 20 pounds. And it's in, this, it's in this sense that Paul's in debt to the people of Rome. Jesus has given him the gospel. And until he passes it on, he's in debt to the people who should have received it from him. That's a pretty incredible understanding of the gospel that Paul has. An understanding that says that anyone who's received from Christ, who's, who, who's received the blessing of salvation, is, is then indebted to those around who, who haven't yet known that privilege. We have no right to keep it to ourselves. Just like Paul, we're bound to make the gospel known to others. In verse 16, Paul gives a second reason for being eager to preach the gospel. This is probably, verses 16 and 17, probably the thesis of the whole of the book of Romans. So just allow this verse to to enter into your your mind and, and rest there. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. A lot of the commentators skim over this as if it's no big deal what Paul says here. It's as if they're saying, of course he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's the Apostle Paul, for goodness sake. I'm more convinced by the line taken by James Stewart, a preacher in Edinburgh. He said, there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to be ashamed of it. It seems to me likely that Paul knew the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. He knew that the message of Jesus Christ crucified was foolishness to the Greeks. He knew that it was a stumbling block to the Jews. Paul knew that when you preach the gospel, people all around you are are horrified by the claims the gospel makes. How did Paul overcome his temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? How how will we do that? He tells us that it's by remembering that this is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. How do we know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for people who believe? Ultimately, and, and most profoundly of all, it'll be as we've known it in our own lives. Do you know the forgiveness of sin? Do you know God's adoption into his family where where he is your heavenly father and you have a sense of that? Do you know the indwelling of God's spirit? Friends, if you do, then you've known the power of the gospel at work in your life. Once you've known that, then you'd want to pass that on. It's when we have seen the gospel working in our own lives 
that we wouldn't want to be ashamed, but we'd want to share such a gospel. In verse 17, Paul gives his third reason for being eager to preach the gospel. He says, In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that's by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Folks, we're, we're almost finished, so don't lose heart. The incredible thing about the gospel is that it gives us the answer, the only answer to the biggest problem that you or I or any human being faces, and that is righteousness before God. The big question for every human being is how do I, a sinful, broken, flawed human being, stand before a perfect, pure, and holy God? And the answer is, I can't. I simply can't do it unless God does something, unless He gives me the righteousness that I need to stand before Him. I can't do it. And this, folks, is the beauty of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the place where a righteousness from God is revealed through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That moment when He takes our sin that we might be clothed in righteousness. A righteousness from God revealed. Folks, we've covered quite a bit of ground this evening, and I want to draw things to a close. At the start of this letter, Paul has told us a bit about himself, a lot about the gospel, something about the Romans, and more about his desire to preach the gospel. As we finish this this introductory uh, period of time looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, I want you to dwell as you, as you leave here this evening on Paul's complete passion to share the gospel. He knows that there is no other way. He knows that this is where the righteousness from God is revealed. He knows that this is where the power for changed lives lies. He knows that he's a debtor to any person with whom he has not yet shared this message. The gospel's burning a hole in Paul's pocket. He needs to give it away and give it away and give it away. Folks, our prayer is that the more we see, the more we understand the gospel, the more we'll share with Paul his passion too. Wouldn't it be great if after this series of time in God's Word, we'd join with him. We'd say, I too am not ashamed of the gospel because I believe that it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Folks, let's pray together.